0: at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to 1 Samuel, chapter 17. 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to God's Word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, They encamped between Soco and Azekah in Ephes-Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. It's over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed six hundred shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, "'Take now for your brothers,' and ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. And carry these ten cheeses to the captains of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in, his, in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, and these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God." Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? This day the Lord will deliver you into My hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give it into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shaarim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. May the Lord bless this reading of his word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we read from 1 Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel chapter 17 and we're focusing our attention upon the, the first few verses here especially The chapter begins, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesimim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. We're also told the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, And Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And then in verse 4, we're told that a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. This is a familiar story for most, if not all of us. We're familiar with this chapter, with this historical narrative, the conflict between David and Goliath. This is not only familiar to most Christians, but it's familiar far beyond the borders of the church. Familiar in many religious traditions. Familiar even throughout the world and throughout our own culture. Uh, We hear allusions to David and Goliath frequently in the political realm, in the sports world, This is a familiar story. And I don't believe that's by accident. Because our God is sovereign. He's sovereign over which parts of His Word are known to a greater or lesser extent. Our God is sovereign over which historical narratives in the Bible uh, are are more prevalent, more known, more familiar. And and I believe that, that in the providence of God, this story has come to the knowledge of so many people because it is so very important for us. And sadly, while the story itself is familiar to many, its meaning and significance is not nearly as familiar. Uh, The meaning of this passage, what is it truly communicating to us about what it means to be a believing, obedient servant of God. What it means to conquer and overcome the world by faith. What it means to put our trust in the greater David who crushes the serpent's head. Even the Lord Jesus Christ in His victory over Satan at the cross. There are so many redemptive themes in this chapter that are unfamiliar to most people who are aware of the story. Now, several years ago, I preached an entire series on this passage, and so we're not going to get into everything. But this morning, we're just going to take an opportunity in this message to look at a particular aspect of this story and how it really connects with the situation that we find ourselves in in our own day and time. We see in verse 1, that the Philistines have gathered their armies together to battle at a place called Soko. We're told that Soko belongs to Judah. So, this conflict takes place within the boundaries of one of the tribes of Israel within the Promised Land, in particular the tribe of Judah. And we're told that the Philistines have therefore invaded into God's land, into Emmanuel's land. They've invaded with their armies. They've gotten as far as Soko into the land of Judah. And they've encamped between Soko and Ezekiel in Ephes-Demim. Now the Philistines would have been invading from the west. They were on the western coast toward the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The cities of the Philistines are well known in Scripture. Gaza. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath from which Goliath had come. At least that's where he was living at the time. So these are the five cities of the Philistines on the west coast. They're invading eastward into that southern uh, allotment of Judah's tribal inheritance. And they've, they've gotten as close as I think around 20 miles from Bethlehem. So they're making progress and they've come to a place between Soko and Ezekiel. And we're told that uh, Saul and Israel respond with a a military advance of their own to defend Israel's territory. Now, in addressing this, we need to think about the, the overall context of Israel's relationship to the Philistines. In fact, who are the Philistines? It might be helpful for us to start there. Many of us are familiar with the place name Palestine and I think it's helpful to recognize that the origin of that term Palestine or Palestinian is integrally connected with the Philistines. And you can just hear it when you say Palestine, Philistine. These two things are connected. And the the although we can't necessarily draw a connection to say that the Palestinians today are definitely the Philistines of old. But you you can at least see a connection here. These are individuals, non-Jews, who lived in the land of Palestine. They were on the west coast by the sea. uh, And most scholars believe that the Philistines migrated to the land of Canaan around 1100 B.C. So roughly three to four hundred years after the exodus. However, we do find in the book of Genesis a reference to Philistines which were in the land of Canaan, even in Abraham's day. So it's unclear perhaps there were some in the land, and then uh, hundreds of years later, a greater number of them migrated to canaan but but that's basically the picture. These people, by the days of David around uh, one thousand b c you you see here that they're present and they're active and they're a threat to Israel. Now this is one of the groups that, at least by inference, God had called the Israelites to drive out of the land. These are uncircumcised pagan Gentiles. They worship a false nature deity called Dagon, these are wicked people. These are the sorts of people that Israel was commanded to drive out under Joshua and in the subsequent days, and Israel failed. Whether it's their laziness and complacency, or Israel was afraid, or, or whatever it was, they were negligent in driving out these various tribes and nations, and the Philistines were one of those that God used and raised up as a thorn in Israel's side, as a chastisement, as a judgment against His people, the Philistines rose and grew in power to afflict the Israelites. And we see that uh, you know, this is, this is par for the course if you read the book of Judges. This is constantly the issue that God's people are dealing with. And the Philistines are right at the center of those conflicts between these nations that God, in a sense, gave uh, gave Israel into their hands and sold Israel into their hands time and time again in that period of the judges. And in terms of Israel's conflict over the years during that period with the Philistines, there are various phases. At one point during that period of the judges, God raises up Samson with miraculous, superhuman strength. Samson is set apart from the womb as a Nazarite, holy unto the Lord, and is given every outward advantage, common gifts of the Spirit, supernatural strength, and yet he fails. Step by step in the life of Samson, time and time again, he violates the holiness of his calling and eventually loses his strength, his eyes are poked out, and he grinds at the mill blind and weak. And eventually, the Philistines make sport of him, bringing him into the house and temple of Dagon, and putting him between the pillars, and he cries out to the Lord. Perhaps his own conversion at that point. And he's made strong through weakness by faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us, and he's able to bring the house down by that return of his strength. And he killed more in his death in collapsing that pagan temple than in his life. But yet, the victory was only partial. It was nowhere near what it ought to have been or what it might have been had he conquered by faith from the outset and not turned to the arm of the flesh. Well, after that, there's still a conflict with the Philistines and we have a period in which Eli, the high priest, and his sons bear great influence in the land and are not only priests, but it seems that Eli has something of an influence as a judge in the land as well. But this was a period of wickedness. Eli didn't discipline and train his sons properly, and they ran wild. Uh, Eli's sons were guilty of fornication, and they engaged in sacrilege with respect to the sacrifices of the tabernacle. And you can see just a pattern of wickedness and superstition and sacrilege that were taking over. And eventually, God raised up the Philistines against His people, and the people at this point ceased to trust in the Lord. They took the Ark of the Covenant into battle, thinking that, in some superstitious manner, it would give them the victory, despite the fact that they were trampling God's law underfoot. And infamously, the ark was captured, Eli 's sons were killed, and when Eli found out about it, he fell and broke his neck. And the glory departed. The ark departed. And yet when the ark was put in the temple of Dagon, the ark unilaterally by the power of God without any human aid or instrument caused the statue of Dagon to fall down and be cut to pieces. God won the victory by the strength of His own right hand. And so the people went through these phases. Trusting in uh, Samson's physical might. Trusting in rituals and superstitions rather than trusting in God. But then God raised up Samuel. And Samuel, even as a young boy, but later on, was a mighty preacher of God's Word. And God made it so that uh, His Word as proclaimed by Samuel did not fall to the ground. God added His blessing to the words of Samuel and to his preaching ministry. For about two decades, Samuel went on a circuit to the various portions of the, the land of Israel where he was received and he would preach the Word and He would call the people to repentance. And He would minister in that way such that after those 20 years, there was revival at Mizpah. And when the Philistines invaded to attack God's people, they turned to Samuel and his intercessory prayer. They put away all their idols. They repented. They, they were revived. And in connection with that revival, the Lord sent loud thunderbolts and destroyed and conquered the Philistine armies that had aggressively invaded the land and God's people put up that stone of help the Ebenezer that God has helped us thus far and we're told amazingly in 1 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 14 that uh, well verse 12 they set up the stone of help the Ebenezer thus far the Lord has helped us but verse 13 So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel." So in the days of Samuel, there was a victory that I'm not sure uh, we see anywhere else in the Scriptures before or after where there are no, or at least for quite some time, no Philistines in the tribal uh, inheritance of Israel. They're pushed out entirely during that time. It's a staggering statement that's made. But sadly, you go into 1 Samuel 8 and the people are tired of relying on God. They're tired of having to repent and walk with God in holiness and in biblical worship and rely upon God to save them through someone who outwardly is unimposing like Samuel. They're not willing to trust anymore in the Word of God and in prayer and in the ordinary means that God has given them, they're not satisfied with that pattern. Instead, they want a king like all the nations. They desire a king like all the nations, and if you look carefully at the various references to this in 1 Samuel, it's clear that Nahash, the aggressive tyrant from the, from the land of Ammon had invaded them around that time and they said, we don't want to trust in God to deliver us with loud thunderbolts or whatever. We want a king like all the nations to defend us and to lead our armies into battle and to to, to essentially rely on the arm of the flesh. Not a godly king, but a king like all the nations. Trusting in man. And so they... They were given what they asked for. God judged them by answering their prayer and giving them their request. Which speaks volumes. We, we need to be careful in thanking God not just for when He gives us what we ask for, but when oftentimes He doesn't give us what we ask for. Uh, because oftentimes He refuses to grant our request for the very reason that what we've asked for is not good. And in this case, He judges them by giving them that evil that they had requested in the form of King Saul, whose name means to ask. Well, you, know, you, you got what you asked for. King Saul. And in the days of Saul, this man who was tall and handsome and towered above the rest of the Israelites in, in a visible and physical manner, uh, they, they put their trust in Saul. And in the days of Saul, there was a Philistine resurgence as we see here. Now, what's, what's taking place in our passage is about 27 years into Saul's 40-year reign. Towards the beginning of Saul's reign, you may recall that there was conflict with the Philistines and Saul's son Jonathan at around 15 years old. And Jonathan was a godly man who trusted in the Lord. Jonathan at age 15 was able to defeat twenty Philistines, uh, an entire garrison of likely about twenty Philistines. Jonathan and his armor bearer were able to defeat, and at that time, they were only able to use farming implements because, of course, the Philistines, being the tyrants they were, uh, you know, put together an assault weapons ban, and Israel couldn't have any kinds of weapons to defend themselves as all tyrannical governments do. And so, all they had were these pitchforks and farming implements for most of the people, but by Jonathan and the armor bearers' boldness and faith in defeating these Philistines and leading the charge in many ways, Israel was able to defend themselves even with those farming implements. And yet, over the course of the next 27 years, Saul proved himself to be an unbelieving, disobedient king. He rejected the Lord and the Lord rejected him. And eventually, the gifts of the Spirit that God had given Saul to aid him in ruling the people were removed and an evil spirit was sent to torment him. So Saul ushered in a period of spiritual declension for God's people and my friends, This conflict between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom is a zero-sum game. When the church takes a nosedive, Satan's kingdom is on the rise. That's just how it works and that's what happened here. There was a Philistine resurgence. And so now Saul is nearing 60 years old and Jonathan is is a couple years into his 40s and, and Philistia advances in their attack into the land of Judah. As far as Soko, they're moving eastward and as I said, they're about 20 miles from Bethlehem. So this is a serious threat to the nation. My friends, it's not merely the case that wicked nations like the Philistines see their opportunity and attack. No doubt that was the case at a human level. They saw their opportunity Uh, They had been fought back by Jonathan years earlier, but now they see their opportunity, now they come out of hibernation and they're bold and aggressive. It's not just human kingdoms and nations that engage in that fashion. Satan's kingdom works in exactly the same way and in many ways, Uh, it's a false dichotomy because Satan is at work in the wicked nations and rulers of this world. No doubt, Satan, even as he was behind the king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, he was behind the king of Tyre in the book of Ezekiel. Satan was integrally involved in this wicked and tyrannical nation of the Philistines. And and so when we see the Philistines taking opportunity, what we really see is Satan taking opportunity. His opportunity. He sees that the church, that Israel is weak. He sees that they're vulnerable. He sees that they're unbelieving. That they have ungodly leadership that doesn't fulfill its duties. He sees this opportunity and he takes his opportunity. And Satan comes out of hibernation and he's more bold and more aggressive in advancing his agenda over against the truth and righteousness of the Word of God. And I don't need to tell you that this is extremely relevant for us in our own day. Because we live in a day when the church is weak. We don't use this to throw stones at other churches. Because we're in a glass house. We've got windows here. The fact of the matter is, we're not as strong as we need to be. We're part of it. The church as a whole, ourselves included, we are weak in our faith. We are weak in our obedience. We are weak in our prayer lives. We don't trust the Lord as we ought. We become anxious with many cares. We're weak and vulnerable. And the church at large is overwhelmingly distracted from its calling, from from God's commandments, from the Great Commission as God has defined it. And there's all kinds of confusion and compromise that is weakening the church of Jesus Christ in our own land, in our culture, and in Western society. So big surprise that when the church and kingdom of God is taking a nosedive, we see Satan's kingdom on the rise. That is not by accident. Uh, There is in a sense a spiritual law, the zero-sum phenomenon there. When we're down, Satan's up and vice versa. The way to push back Satan is for the church to rise up and, and advance the Kingdom of Christ. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is not on the defensive, He's on the offensive. He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against Him. He's not trying to conserve anything Fundamentally, Jesus is not a conservative, although, of course, we could, we could see some overlap there, but, but fundamentally, Jesus is on the white horse, riding forth, conquering, and to conquer. In this sense, the best defense is a good offense. It ought to be the people of God who are bold and aggressive, riding on the white horses with Jesus Christ as He leads us into battle, but my friends, that's not happening with Saul there's spiritual declension, and therefore there is a Philistine resurgence. And Satan is on the warpath, and God's people are back on their back heels defensively. It's a sad state of affairs. And in our own day, we should understand why things are the way they are. Why is it that Satan and his kingdom is more bold in advancing perverse and ungodly and blasphemous things putting them on the billboards, all over the media, right up there in your face. Why is that happening? Why has Satan seen fit to take that opportunity? And why has that opportunity proved to be a golden one for the advancement of his kingdom? Because the the weakness, the disobedience, the foolishness of ourselves as the church and kingdom of Jesus Christ. So there's a Philistine resurgence. We see in verse 2, that there's a response. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. Now remember, Israel chose Saul because he was big, he was tall, he was impressive outwardly. We're going to see he's, he's nowhere near as tall as he needs to be for this conflict, but, but he's tall. He's a head taller than all the Israelites. And when Nahash the Ammonite invaded, Saul's going to deliver us. Saul is the king like all the nations. My friend, when the, the Philistines invade here, understand this is Saul's moment to shine. From the Israelites' perspective, the, the name that we would give to the story contained in this chapter at this point would be not David and Goliath, but Saul and Goliath. Because that's whom they've chosen to represent them, to lead them. This is Saul's moment to shine. A king like all the nations. And yet we see that Saul and the men of Israel who were looking to him and trusting in him, that when all of this took place, uh, there was utter paralysis. Utter paralysis. We saw that elsewhere in our text that um, when the Philistine came out and threatened Israel, Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And we see that for 40 days, which in the Scriptures, the number 40 often conveys testing. Okay? Forty years in the wilderness for Israel in the days of Moses. Forty days in the wilderness for Jesus being tested or tempted by the devil and here, Israel spends 40 days in the wilderness of Judah at Soko and Ezekiel being tested. Show us a man. Show us a real man. That's what Goliath's saying, by the way. Because again, it's supposed to be Saul who shows up and fights him. Saul is the guy who Israel appointed to lead them into battle and to be their champion and to defend the nation. And yet, what happens? Saul's not coming out. And that's why you see the word man repeated over and over again. Goliath is saying, okay, go tell Saul to find a man. Because obviously he's not the man, so figure out who the man is and send him out to do battle against me. But in any event, uh, Philistia is testing, and I would say God providentially is testing Israel. Give me a man. Give me a man. But there's no man to be found. Forty days, and no one steps up. The term champion means a man between the camps. Philistia has a champion to go in between the armies, a man between the camps to lead God's people into battle by well uh, in through human foolish self confidence. But God's people need a man in between the camps by faith. By faith. And none can be found. The church, the kingdom here is weak, vulnerable, unable to answer the aggressive onslaught of God's enemies. As I mentioned, they're playing defense rather than playing offense. They're trying to conserve things rather than trying to advance the truth and righteousness of King Jesus, as it were. And so, they're utterly paralyzed by fear. And this is what we see in the church today. We see great confusion and compromise, fear and anxiety in the evangelical and reformed church today. This is a temptation for every one of us. We don't have the confidence, the boldness to go forth between the camps by faith, anointed with the Holy Spirit. to. Disciple the nations. God has called us to do it. Jesus commanded it. He says, I'll be with you till the end of the world to make it happen. I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we say, well, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And that means that the church is just going to be whittled down to this tiny little remnant throughout history, losing every single battle and then... Uh, you know, when Jesus returns, the church wins with a buzzer beater. And no, that's not what it says. That's not what the Bible teaches. That is an unbiblical view of history. Because gates are defensive, my friends. Gates are defensive. Jesus says, I'm going on the offensive. I will build my church and hell will be on the defensive. Hell will be anxious and concerned. As, by the way, when Israel went in to conquer the land, the Canaanite tribes were afraid. They were trembling. But in many cases, Israel didn't believe and Israel didn't take its opportunity and and eradicate all of those nations and tribes from the land. But the fact is, God put them in fear. Jesus is on the offensive. And hell is on the defensive. And hell's best effort with its defensive gates to hold back the advance of the Gospel to disciple all the nations of the world, hell will be unsuccessful. And we need to remember that. But Israel here is failing. Why? Because it's playing defense. And that's what's happening in the church today. We're playing defense. We're afraid to go out into the middle of the camp and stand for Jesus Christ and use His name and proclaim His truth unashamedly on the basis of the Word of God, which is the final authority for for faith and life and for all the important ethical questions of our day. We're on our back feet. We're defensive. Just like Israel. Now, verse 3 tells us that the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And you see here, one instance of a broader cosmic conflict that is in some ways the main theme of the entire Bible. The conflict between these two nations, these two armies, these two camps, these two gods, these two religions, these two worldviews, or agendas, or lifestyles. Fundamentally, there is a conflict here. A cosmic conflict. And you see it throughout the Scriptures from the very outset in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve fall into sin, God reveals that there will be a conflict between the seed of the woman, Christ and His church, and on the other hand, the seed of the serpent who will draw blood from the seed of the woman who will strike his heel, but then that heel will come crushing down upon the serpent's head. And we see that, of course, at the cross. But, by the way, Satan didn't stop fighting after his head was crushed. And we see in the text that the Philistines don't stop fighting, in a sense, uh, when Goliath's head is crushed by the stone. There's still further effort, still further conflict uh, that takes place more battles and, and so on that take place even though the decisive victory has been achieved. So there is this, even in our own day, this cosmic conflict between these two camps. And this conflict is unambiguous, my friends. There's a valley in between Israel and the Philistines and it would be easy to determine who's on which side. You, you just look, okay, is, is a person on this side Or that side. It's unambiguous. And not in the same exact sense or to the same extent precisely, but yet, in a sense, the conflict today is unambiguous. Who is on the Lord's side? What you believe and how you live your life will demonstrate outwardly to the watching world and to the church around you, whether you're on the side of Jesus Christ or the world whether you're on the side of righteousness or unrighteousness, whether you're on the side of Jehovah or Dagon, your beliefs and your lifestyle in manifesting those beliefs in your everyday behavior, those things manifest what side that you're on. And this is also an irreconcilable conflict. An irreconcilable antithesis between light and darkness. These two things are utterly incompatible. There is no neutrality between Israel and Philistia. There's no middle ground. There's no hope of coexistence. Either the land under their feet belongs to Jehovah and His people, or it belongs to Dagon and His people. And we could say it in our own day. Either the ground on which we stand... Either the land in which we live belongs by crown right to King Jesus. It has been willed and bequeathed to Him by His heavenly Father the inheritance of all nations. Either that is the case and this is Emmanuel's land and the entire nation has a duty to submit to Jesus Christ. And of course, the church has a duty. I mean, We struggle with this even in the church. We have a duty to submit to Jesus as head and king of the church. Either that is the case or it's not. And there's a law of excluded middle. You you have to pick a side. You, You can't continue to sit on the fence and halt between two opinions. This is irreconcilable. It's an antithesis that permits no neutrality and no middle ground. You're on one side or the other. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Whose side are you on? And too often, We're tempted in the church today to be Israelites by day. You know, we clock in at certain points throughout the week. We clock in as an Israelite, as a Christian, and then we clock out at 5 o'clock and then we go off and live our lives however we please. And there's no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Or perhaps we clock in on the Sabbath and then we clock out. We're we're an Israelite one day a week, a Philistine six days a week. My friends, these things ought not to be so. Uh, Because at the end of the day, if you're not fully engaged and committed on the Lord's side, then you're on the devil's side. And you're actually more useful to Him just like Judas, because you're in the inner circle and you're an asset to His agenda to promote what he desires in undermining the ministry of the church. Now, verse 4 tells us that a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines. Goliath from Gath. This champion, we're told, was roughly 9 feet 9 inches tall. Six cubits and a span. So, well over 9 feet tall in our culture, if there's a, a basketball player who's You know, seven foot one, they're a giant. They tower over everybody. Every once in a while you see someone who's seven foot five or seven foot seven. And um, it's just overwhelming. These are giants among us. But Goliath was at least two feet taller than any of those people. And I don't suspect that he was, uh, you know, a a rail. Uh, I think he probably had quite a bit of uh, meat on his bones, as they say. He was a man of war from his youth, a mighty muscular man, an imposing force that caused the people of God to be in utter fear and anxiety. We're told he had a bronze helmet, he looked the part, bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, in other words, a coat that had scaly armor. Uh, Again, bringing bringing to mind that he's really representing the kingdom of Satan, the serpent of old. He has this scaly, snake-like serpentine armor covering himself. You think of uh, smog from uh, The Hobbit, that type of thing. And the weight of this coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a a bronze armor on his legs. So he's armed to the teeth from head to toe. He's got a bronze javelin between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. You can um, look that up on a search engine sometime. Uh, Massive. A spear like a weaver's beam. Utterly massive. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. That's around 15 pounds. And he had a shield bearer that went before him. So you can imagine how heavy the shield must have been. And he is called the champion of the Philistines. The man between the camps. It's obvious that the strategy of Philistia here was one of psychological warfare. They were trying to intimidate the Israelites. You've got a king that's a head taller than all of your soldiers. Well, we're going to find a man who's maybe, probably, at least three feet taller than King Saul. Psychological warfare. Seeking to cause God's people to be overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. This is the same dynamic that took place when Israel first came through the wilderness to Kadesh Barnea at the doorway to the Promised Land. And that first generation under Moses refused to listen to Joshua and Caleb and in fear turned back from entering the land. Why? Because there were all these Goliaths in the land. All of these giants who intimidated them and caused them to disobey God's command of entering into the land. They even exaggerated their their presence in a way by comparing them to the Nephilim in, in the days of Noah, which of course all of those individuals died in the flood, but it's the same type of person. These larger-than-life figures that Israel is afraid of uh, in the past and even here in this conflict. And we're told in Joshua 11, verse 22, that the remnant of these giants from the land of Canaan, they didn't kill all of them, the remnant of them lived within the boundaries of Philistia and in Gath. And so, Goliath is among the remnant of the giants that Israel drove out of the land under Joshua in that second generation of Israelites that entered the land. Now, Let's stop and think about something that really should be obvious to us, but it's the Philistines that should have been afraid here. Not the Israelites. It's the Philistines that should have been deathly afraid of the people of God. And to illustrate this, let me just simply ask the question, why is Goliath living in Gath? Why is Goliath linked up as a mercenary for the Philistines. He's not a Philistine but by uh, ethnicity. He's not a Philistine. Why is he a man without a country who's being paid to represent the Philistines? Why is that the case? Why is he a stranger in a strange land? It, it's because God had destroyed most of His ancestors and driven them from the promised land. Driven them to the periphery, to the outskirts of the land. God had defeated them in the past. And how did God do that? He did it with an 85-year-old man. Caleb, having wandered in the wilderness with the Israelites for 40 years after his initial role as a spy in uh, uh, sizing up the land, Caleb was 85 years old and by faith he defeated those sons of Anak, these giants from whom Goliath descended. The fact of the matter is, the Philistines should have been afraid. They should have been afraid of the God who delivered Israel by means of Samuel. And we're, we're not told that there was anything physically imposing in terms of Samuel, and yet God delivered his people through the prayers and through the sermons of this prophet and sent loud thunderbolts and dispersed and drove back the Philistine armies. They should have been afraid because of what God does through outwardly uh, uh, weak means. They should have been afraid of the God who used 15-year-old Jonathan and his armor bearer to defeat an entire battalion of Philistines. They should have been afraid of the God who brought the house down on the temple of Dagon using a blinded Samson. They should have been afraid of the God who um, basically uh, ripped Dagon to pieces, again in the house of a different house of Dagon, without any human help or aid, just with the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines should have been afraid, but instead, Israel is afraid because, in unbelief, they've chosen to put their trust in a king like all the nations. They've chosen to put their trust in Saul because he's tall. But my friends, this is, this is how the church seems to always function. We fall into this trap so frequently and it, it utterly uh, hamstrings our efforts in fighting the world. It holds us back. It almost guarantees our failure when, when we try to beat the world at its own game. When we try to out Satan Satan. Outworld the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to choose someone uh, because, you know, in terms of military positions because of their physical stature, that could be an asset. I'm not saying that in, in the world in which we live today, where there are many different things taking place and we need Christians to be involved in politics and we need Christians to be involved in business and we need Christians to be excellent in every area of life and have their swords sharpened to advance the kingdom through faithfulness and excellence like Daniel. I'm not denying that we should be excellent in the legitimate spheres of worldly engagement. Uh, But as I said in reference to Psalm 44a, we cannot trust in that excellence or preparation that we have as the decisive factor of our victory. And when we have that preparation, and we trust in that preparation to the exclusion of prayerful reliance upon God to give the increase and give the victory. When we act like that, we always fail. This has crippled the church and the kingdom of Christ for centuries, and it still is a problem today. You're not going to out Goliath Goliath. The Lord, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chooses the weak and the foolish things, the things that are not outwardly impressive. This is often how He works. It's not saying He can't use someone who, who happens to be a celebrity and they come to faith in Christ. Or they happen to be uh, you know, someone who's very good looking or a model or something like that. Uh, it doesn't mean that that God can't use someone who has this academic superiority and respectability. God can do that, but His M.O. is not to do that. And, and too often, the church's M.O. is to go out of its way to find the person that has this amazing respectability in the academic world, or has these amazing good looks, or is, is a, a rapper or a... Uh, an actor or somebody who's converted to Christianity or the latest Christian quarterback. And and that's the person that's going to lead us into battle. And we continue to fail at that strategy as has been the case time immemorial in the life of God's kingdom. Uh, Greater is He that is in you, dear believer, than he that is in the world. It's the Spirit of God that empowers us, whoever and whatever we are, however unimposing and unimpressive. And 1 John 5, 4 tells us that we overcome the world by faith in the Son of God. Yes, we need to be prepared and be excellent. But at the end of the day, it's God that gives the victory. And here you have 40 days of God through Goliath issuing this challenge to His people. Give me a man. God is testing them in the wilderness. Give me a man. Give me a man. Eventually, God raises up a man after his own heart. David, who points us forward to the ultimate man after God's own heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, whom Pilate in God's providence declared. He said, Behold the man. If we're going to defeat the kingdom of darkness, we need the One who says, I am the light of the world. Who has established a kingdom of light. And we engage not by flesh and blood, we engage not by carnal weapons of this world, but our trust is in Christ. Who rides forth on the white horse into the midst of the valley. Who rides forth conquering and to conquer. And Revelation says He rides forth with his believing people on the horses next to him advancing moving forward by the spirit of god my friends let us think about these things let us examine ourselves as to our prayer life as to the ways in which we manifest that our confidence is not in our gifts or our preparation or our outward advantages or leverage points but that our our trust is in the Lord. Are we praying individually as families and together as as we have opportunity, collectively as a congregation? Are we praying? Are we studying that Word of God which is our sharpened sword of the Spirit? Are we looking for ways to glorify God even when we don't have the leverage and the advantage? Are we looking for ways to simply do what God's called us to do when His name is blasphemed, when He is rejected and despised, and the world says, give me a man. You're pathetic. Church, you're pathetic. People of God, you've got nothing. Are you willing to step up In grace and truth and boldness and speak a word for the Lord. Are you willing to do that? And trust that God will give you the victory. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are weak, but in our weakness, we pray that the power of Christ would rest upon us and that You would do great and mighty things that we know not so that all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.